Oh, hey there. Want to achieve immaculate dopeness in your career? Well, just having the skills alone is probably not going to cut it. You got to have a strong personal brand as well. Having a personal brand is how you're able to put your stuff out in front of people who care and build value for everyone in your communities. If personal branding is on your mind and you have not yet checked out the Discover Your Inner Awesome Masterclass, the F is wrong with you. For real, though, go to www.discoveryourinnerawesome.com. That's where we've got all the information about our signature 10-week personal brand boot camp called the Discover Your Inner Awesome Masterclass. You'll learn to craft your voice, build a tribe, and get recognized for the things you are passionate about. Again, that's www.discoveryourinnerawesome.com. Head over there and apply for a seat in our program. On now with the show. Got in a landslide. <laughs> from reality. Yeah, I'm into hip hop. I don't know. That's <laughs> clean. Fair enough. I've never been put in such a vulnerable position. I'm pressing hard now just to feel the ignition. My heart. It is that time again, ladies and gentlemen, for another edition of Idea Lemons, Discover Your Inner Awesome Podcast. My name is Rajiv Nathan. I am the Idea Lemon co-founder and your show's co-host. And as always, I am with you on this show with Martin McGovern, my co-founder and co-host. This is Discover Your Inner Awesome, the only show where you get to eavesdrop on conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, and musicians about the stories, the journeys, the struggles, but most importantly, the questions. The questions that help us all better understand who we are, what we're doing, and how we can do it better. In this episode, we hang out with Christian Aloma. He's a self-proclaimed marketer turned social scientist. What does that mean? Well, he's a group director at a company called Brand Trust, and he focuses primarily on how to weave social sciences and stories into marketing. And he's also currently pursuing a PhD in narrative psychology. Crazy stuff. We talk with Christian about a very, very deep question in this one. How do you find meaning? I'm pumped. You guys are going to love this one. Now, before we get started, quick reminder and invitation. Come over and join our tribe over at idealemon.com. Subscribe to our email newsletter there. You'll never miss an episode of this show and be in touch with the other cool articles, stories we share about being awesome, building a dope personal brand, and so much more. All right, let's listen to our conversation now with Christian Aloma. A very deep one. How do you find meaning? Let's listen in. Meaning making is the function of story, as a function of narrative, the reason we use narrative in our lives, the reasons we tell narratives to others all around us. Um, and that is obviously a core focus of, of what I'm trying to uncover in my research. Uh, the other side of it that I think is really important is just simply to the way and how we feel about the lives that we're living on a day-to-day basis. Um, there are a lot of things that happen to us that we ignore, overlook, uh, or in some cases take to mean something entirely different. Um, and I think there are a lot of ways that if we just simply reframe the way we think about our experiences, reframe the way we think about our reaction to moments, we can find more meaning in these moments than we ever realized before. Uh, and I think the more meaning we can find in our lives, I think the better in general. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> I would say that that's a pretty accurate statement. Are there currently things in your life that you're trying to reframe? Yeah, uh, 
right now, actually, my pursuit of a PhD um, itself has been a task that has been extremely challenging. Um, I have the amazing talent of beginning really challenging projects in the middle of other really challenging projects. And so my PhD program began shortly before my first child was born and we moved to South Florida from Chicago. And so I sort of began the whole thing in the midst of this craziness. Uh, was really excited about it though and got really energized as I typically do with new projects. Uh, pushed through it and year three and four and five started to feel like, oh, should I keep doing this at all, right? I'm just running, I'm just tired of mm -hmm. doing this. And, um, you know, and I have to keep sort of reminding myself over and over and over again, you know, what, what it will mean when this journey is complete uh, and not just the PhD, but what can I, how can I essentially think about myself? How can I define myself as someone who has sort of overcome this really arduous task, right? This journey I've been on that has required uh, really late nights, really early mornings. I became addicted to caffeine because of this journey. Um, I've got two kids now in the process, in the middle of this journey, I'm still working full time. So what, what kind of person comes out of that successful. Um, and, and that's the sort of thing I try and, I'm trying to keep reminding myself whenever I'm thinking, you know, if I just quit now, I still got the masters on the way, or maybe I'm like three papers away from finishing the dissertation. And I just have to keep telling myself don't because there's, there's something really powerful to having accomplished it, having completed it uh, at all, so. What's that image in your head that you've built of that person who comes out the other side? Um, uh, there's a couple of things, and it's not just the person I think that comes out of it, but the, and this is going to sound obviously very self-serving, is the story I can tell about myself when I have. Um, so the person that comes out of it is um, one who, is, aside from accomplishing a PhD, uh, one who has sort of continued a, a, a line or a history of valuing education in my family. So I come from a Caribbean family, Jamaican and Cuban um, and it, it isn't one of those stories where you know, I was the first born in the U.S. It, it's not one of those stories where I was the first to go to college, right? It was one of those stories where my grandmother had a degree in seamstress. Um, and, uh, you know, my parents both got graduate degrees and my mother got a Ph.D. Um, and so they, they both taught for many years. My mother still does in South Florida. Um, and, and so education has always been this sort of really meaningful thing in regards to how you elevate your life uh, in a number of different platforms and other different sort of uh, ways. And so there's that to me, which I think is really important and something I want to continue to sort of pass on to my own kids as we move forward. Um, the other thing about it is that it is something that, um, you know, my grandfather uh, came from, you know, depression era Cuba. Uh, my grandmother lived through the depression and things like that. I have a history of family members that don't stop because things get hard. Um, and so part of what it, it will mean to me is that I didn't stop either. Uh, now, those are on extremely different levels, mm -hmm. right? I mean, what my grandmother and my grandfather went through are nothing like me sort of surviving the problems of upper class or middle class America, being able to get a PhD program and work full time and all that sort of stuff. But uh, the emotional, the, the social, the psychological challenges of doing this despite all of the barriers and the obstacles that might be in the way um, are, are something that I think is important to do and prove to myself and also do to prove and demonstrate to my kids that you don't stop because it's hard. You don't stop because uh, things get rough or things get tough. That you, you, If you set out to accomplish it, 
you accomplish that task. Yeah, there's two things that came up during that that I think are really fascinating. The first is you're writing the story in your head as you're going through it, which I think a lot of people, everyone's doing subconsciously. Like you're like, oh, my boss is a jerk, so I'm the underdog here kind of a thing. But we don't acknowledge it, so we never own it. And then the second thing is putting that into context and go, I mean, you've taken it to the extreme, right? You're, you're not just putting it into context of this career path or of your own life. You're putting it into context of your great grandmother and your right. kids' kids. Yeah. And like the, the story arc for that starts so much earlier and ends so much later. And it's kind of a mythology at some point. Absolutely. Um, and I, I often tell people, um, my grand, my grandmother, uh, who lived through the depression just recently passed away. And, one of the things I remind um, both my loved ones and, and others when they suffer very similar losses is that um, immortality are, is in the memories we keep of the people we know. And so the stories we share about each other, the stories we share um, uh, of, of those that have passed and those that we're passing on are the things that make it mythological, right? It's, those are the things of legend, essentially, right? Where you start to create these stories of great-great-grandpa who did this really amazing thing. Whether it's true or not anymore, mm-hmm. we're not sure, but those stories carry a family sort of brand, if you will, a family value that gets carried on and, and moves forward. And so I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I've, I've become really conscious of the fact that I'm creating narratives as I'm living them. Um, and, and I think that's something that's really important for people to think about and to do, because as I mentioned earlier, we, we will sometimes go through life without thinking of that narrative thinking that, you know, that, that, huge thing we just accomplished was just for the sake of accomplishing mm-hmm. that when it could actually contribute more meaning to who, how you feel about yourself, what you think about yourself um, and, and the way you present yourself to others. And so I think if we were actually more conscious about the narratives we're experiencing and, and, and creating, I think not only do we find more meaning in these experiences, but we might even find that we can direct those experiences even better because we want to live a better story. Yeah. Um, That's something that. Actually, a lot of people who I've been talking to recently, I've been bringing up a similar concept to that, which is, you know, people who get down when things are going bad or whatever, and they're like, oh, this is, how could this possibly happen, yeah. et cetera. <clears throat> I'm like, treat your life like a series on Netflix. Yeah. This is an episode, like you're in season whatever, it's season one, and this is the third episode. It's right. like, but this, there's a hero's journey being tracked here. And Absolutely. Right now, it's like, oh, the whatever, the big breakup happened, but there's going to be a bounce back point, right? There's going to be a season finale to this mm. chapter. Yeah. And then a new season's going to start. And when you start to, going back to that reframing, right? When you start to reframe under that and take yourself out of your own head and try to just, you know, while you're here, envision yourself like standing, looking at yourself. Yeah. Then you start to, really think about these other contexts in which you live your life. Yeah. Uh, and that could be, whether it's a Netflix series or whether you're like Super Mario, whatever, like there's all these things we look to already for our entertainment, for our enlightenment, for our inspiration. And then it's like, now we can look at that or we can say, how do I fit within the context of that thing? Yeah. yeah. And then you, you change how you, how you view it. You're already living vicariously through the, the stories that you in you know consume, so you might as well actually put yourself in that story. Like oh yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, to your point, I mean, I think those those narratives that we live, or those the, the way in which we reframe this stuff, um, 
there's a quote, and I'm, I'm going to bastardize the quote, but it's along the lines of, um, if it hasn't worked out in the end, it's not the end. Um, and um, to me, I'm, that's, that, that idea has always stood out to me because um, psychologically, one of the things you'll note, and this isn't certainly by far a, like a universal rule, but whenever we make these really big decisions in our lives, afterwards, years after that, we always say, I think I made the right decision then, right? Because it sort of always works out. Whether it rationally does or not, I think we psychologically accept and move forward with things in our lives because we have to. Our, our, our brain just doesn't want us to sit there and suffer in tension of mm-hmm. things we haven't done or things that feel unresolved or anything like that. We try to resolve these things or we try to, to make sense of them. The brain will just naturally make it make sense. And so um, I think you're absolutely right. Thinking of it as a season shifts our mentality from this was a failure to this was a moment. Yeah. Um, and there's uh, the, the old cliche, right, that life's not about the destination, it's about the journey. To me, I've always found it too cliche in some regards because I've, I've, I like to drive and I, I don't care for the journey all that much. <laughs> I like getting to where I'm going. But um, I like to think of it more as life is a story. And it, it's, it's not that it has, you know, these, it doesn't end every time something bad happens or even something good happens. It keeps going. The narrative keeps going. The seasons keep going, right? It's 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 a binge watching of life. I mean, <laughs> uh, it, you'll just keep you'll keep creating these stories, and every story you go through becomes, in some way, shape, or form, almost like the foreshadowing of the next one, or it makes the next one make more sense, or you approach the next narrative with greater understanding because of the one you've just been through. You know, it's it's. I remember when I had my high school girlfriend, I thought, man, this is what love is. And then I had my college girlfriend. I was like, this is actually what love is. That was ridiculous, right? And now I'm married with kids and I'm like, this is what love is. All that stuff was nonsense, right? All of these things build on your understanding. And so I think you, you, it allows you to both be grateful for what you've been through because it, it prepares you for the next narrative you're entering. Yeah. Every morning you look in the mirror and say, play. Right. <laughs> Essentially. I mean, you have that choice or you say, or you just, you let life push you around. Yeah. And, and even if, I mean, you can let life push you around. That's a different narrative altogether. I just don't find that a great narrative to be a part of. Yeah. yeah. It's um, when you're usually unhappy. Yeah. And I mean, and sometimes you need those moments. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I like to just chill out on the weekend every now and then, but um, yeah, you're, you're an active, everyone is the hero of their own narrative. Yeah. And so what kind of hero do you want to be? I think one of my favorite things as I've been, I started doing improv recently and one of, one of my favorite things is studying um, comedians and how they move through the world. Like Jerry Seinfeld and um, Larry David, every negative thing that happens to them becomes a study in human behavior yeah. that they get to use later on as material. Oh yeah. And so like they, they enjoy getting frustrated because it's fun to get frustrated. And uh, there was one moment on set of Curb Your Enthusiasm where uh, some assistant was like, why do you just let things go and like not get upset about it? And he's like, but if I don't get upset, it's not funny. And like, he like <laughs> freaks out. And like, it's just, it's a very different way of, of looking at the world as though you're the victim of everything or looking at the world as though things are just happening and you're, you're like getting to watch it as a movie. Yeah. And then also like looking at the world as as fodder for things that you can use later. Oh, absolutely. And there's so many different ways that we can view things. Like if you view life as a movie that you're you're a part of, and we all kind of have this, uh, we're the main character. Like I grew up thinking Truman Show was really about me. <laughs> and like, 
you sort of start taking yourself in and seeing like, this isn't just something that's happening, whether it's a sh so like, let's get you, some, you get a car accident or something like the car accident is shitty. You can look at it and it ruins the whole month. Right. Or you can look at it and be like, where's the funny in here? Or like, where's the interesting thing yeah. in here that I can learn? Who's this person I crashed into? Maybe they're important. Yeah. <laughs> that is a way to reframe it. Uh, it'd be funny if they were someone important. Entertaining. Um, Bill Gates and I'm screwed. Yeah. I, do, I do think comedians, though, um, I, I think they're the contemporary true philosophers and critics of our time. Even even though you know they're sort of taken as jokesters, most comedians I think have the most honest criticisms of culture than most journalists uh, and, and most contemporary philosophers and psychologists. They look at that world in that really sort of different way and see either a narrative that is is broken or or and it's usually the broken ones that are funny or the unexpected ones that are funny, and that's why they can sort of work with that and, and live off of that because they're identifying these narratives that for the most of the time, the rest of us ignore uh, and they see something wrong and they want to call that out. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why I, I, I truly like, I, I always tell people, I think humor is the best sign of intelligence uh, in the world. Yeah. Well, yeah. If you can't find the humor in something, then you're usually not able to extract yourself from what's happening. You're too caught up in what's yeah. happening to be able to yeah. look at it under a different type of lens. Right. I want to go back to a couple of things you said before, which was that idea of, it was like, it's not failure, it's just a moment, right? And as you said that, what I thought of was, well, isn't it interesting then that you look at like some of these like updates Facebook puts up and it's like, would you like to post a moment? Yeah. It's not, would you like to post a permanent act of self-righteousness or, or self-deprecation? <laughs> right. It's, would, it's like, share this moment with your friends. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that came to my mind was snap. Yeah. The other thing that came to my mind was, well, moment, moment is the root for momentum. And you string together these moments in order to gain momentum. Oh, yeah. These are not individually. I think we, we treat too many things in silos. When yeah. That's not the case. And whether it's across the string of, you know, whether it's going to work today, tomorrow and the next day, or going to work meeting friends later and then going to the gym, like there were sort of three separate activities, but there is a string that connects them as well. Yeah. Wait a second. So like everything I've heard about social media in the past four years has been like, everyone's just posting the best parts of their life and it's so fake and it's so blah, blah, it's blah. Right. Yeah. And it's true. But at the same time, if, if recording your moments is what defines you remembering your past and if all you're recording are the positive things, when you look back at your past, you're going to be like, I have a great life. And it's going to make you feel better today. If all you do is post the negative stuff, you're going to look back on your past and vividly remember all the negative stuff. Like, I think they say we remember negative things way more than we remember positive things. Like five, five positives for every one negative or something like that. Yeah. Or something. Or the way around. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Flip that. And, and like... If, if that's true, then it's a good thing that we're recording every positive moment because then when we go back through the string of our life, we can feel good about ourselves today. And I know just from recording podcasts for over a year, like being able to go back to a podcast and a conversation that I had a year ago and hear what life was like back then for me is just a complete shift on, oh, yeah. on, on who I am. Because I'm like, oh shit, I didn't know I said those things. <laughs> 
Absolutely. And I think you're absolutely right. And what's interesting, what, what I, where social media, I think, gets complex is uh, the, the social drive of it all, right? And if you, if you think about parents uh, and, and when they take photographs of their kids' memories and things like that, you know, the albums that they keep at home and then they later show to your girlfriend or your boyfriend or whatever when you're growing up, they don't show the times that you got... Uh, look, at this, look at this time he's being a complete dick. Right. They don't show those moments, right? They don't show those moments. They're not like, here's the, here's when he was in timeout again, right? Here's when he burnt the house down, You've right? never seen my parents' phone book, have you? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some parents are different. But, um, this is when Martin was a dick in Ireland. That's right. Um, but the, the, the interesting thing, though, is what photo albums do, especially ones that parents create for their kids, is they... They basically tell the child, I was a good parent, wasn't I? Look mm. at all these positive stories from your childhood. Uh, and even, even I mean, the humble brag is the essence of sort of the self-deprecating positive story, right? It is like, I wasn't a great parent, but you grew up okay, right? Mm. You know, and, and it's, it's you create these narratives that are just really positive. And I think social media does the same thing um, in that you are creating the highlight reel of your life because... Honestly, when you do that like flashbulb moment when you're dying and you're looking back through your life, you're not looking through every single detail, right? You're right. hoping to look at a highlight reel that hopefully you enjoy at, at, at the end of all of it. So, oh no, yeah. oh, right. oh god, <laughs> not that one. <laughs> <laughs> this is my last moment. Well, and the other thing too, as you mentioned, the social media aspect of it was that I'm thinking of is so there's everyone getting mad like oh like people are only posting their best moments and make you know posting themselves looking fit and on the beach why is it the responsibility of every person to take on the burden of the larger socio psychological impact that somebody might have on someone else well and that's that's i think what makes it so complex in social media is like the problem psychologically is is that comparing yourselves to other people's lives especially if their lives look better than yours makes you feel worse about your life like mm -hmm. they've got a better story than i do yeah. um and so that's where i think social media becomes more complex in that versus like just keeping a personal diary of yeah. really happy moments you know and um uh so yeah w i think when you get into that comparison and contrast that's why even now I'm, i've become really selective about who i follow on social media what I, I, I mean, I even process like, how am I interpreting this post from this other person that was this, yeah. this, this amazing look, oh, look at them, they're on the beach in Thailand again, right? I mean, it's, it's okay, great, they're having a good time, I'm having a good time too, so. And with, I think probably more so with something like Instagram, because Facebook is, it's all your friends you elect to have yeah. in your circle. Instagram, you'll follow people you don't know. But you make a choice to follow the, you know, Skinny, flirty, fit girl. Not, not in the explore part of the app. The explore part of the app just throws. I've never, I've never used that. Part it's, of the app. it's it's the second button, and like the second button is just like a feed of who. I'm like, where is this stuff even coming from? Like, I've but no for idea. that for there to be a consistent, you know, like oh, this person's always, you know, it's like you choose to follow someone who you think is like influential or whatever, and who's posting interesting photos, but you make that choice to yeah. follow these right. people. So if you if something in your brain said I like seeing these images, it's you can't get mad when you're like all I ever see are these images. Yeah, unfollow. 
Yeah. It's an amazing button. Yeah. The unfollow button. Um, and you can choose not to click the explorer. The explorer. That's why I'm not tab. familiar with. I mean, I, 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 use I, mean I, I, I browse through the exploration tab all the time, too. So it's, I'm like, I find that, it actually really entertaining. That guy's Captain America costume is so much cooler than my zip-up hoodie. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I follow Ryan Reynolds and then feel bad about it. Yeah. yeah that, I, I'm like, I, I'm not Ryan Reynolds right that's now. That's one of the ones I follow. Uh, so... <laughs> Um, yeah, it's that's those comparisons affect us in that way. But but I mean, you even to your point, not only do you have the power to unfollow these individuals, I mean, you have the power to also process that point differently. Um, you know, and and that's where you see actually a lot of that conflict between, boy, she just keeps taking pictures of her body, versus this is inspiring me to try to get a body like hers, right? I mean, you can interpret these data points in very different ways depending on how you're looking at that and how you're weaving it into the narrative you're telling. Yeah. I think, and, and some of this too is, um, if you remember when we were talking to my friend Allie, uh, one of my yoga instructors, and she was saying like one of the things she's working on this year it, it, with herself is how is she controlling the hyperbole in her reaction? Mm-hmm. Like she's like down to, like she was holding a mug of tea. She's like, She's like, I could say, oh, this is scalding, but no, it's just, it's, it's hot. Right. It's not the hottest thing I've ever touched. And when, so, you know, when you stub your toe, you can choose to be like, oh my God, like I'm in so much pain. Or you can be like, this is a normal level of pain, but it's not the worst pain that exists in the world. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's an interesting dynamic to have mentally is how do you, you can, there's your gut reaction to things, but then there's your choice reaction after the gut reaction. Yeah. Uh, and that's really how a lot of things I've started to try to become more aware of over the last year or two years is thinking about, you know, there's me in this situation, but then I don't have the only perception or I don't have the only viewpoint to this situation. Yeah. And I think that goes to, um, I mean, I think Martin, you're much more neurotic than I am about certain things. Thank you. But like there are, but there's frequently times where I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> like something will happen, you're like, God damn it! I'm like, what are you so mad about? Yeah. These pretzels are making me thirsty. <laughs> no, but there's um, this actually brings up something really interesting because um, I was listening to this podcast the other day about cultures and how other cultures look at America and like we are weird, but we don't know it because it's us, right? Right. Just like someone else can look at you and point out that you're neurotic and. It might not be something you realize about yourself. No. <laughs> I'm very aware. But um, the idea being people come here from other countries and they're like, you guys are so relentlessly like, ha- like maybe not actually happy, but focused on happiness. Right. And um, whereas other countries like um, I think they interviewed someone from Japan and she was like, the baseline is that you're unhappy. Yeah. So, like, happiness is like, oh, that's a cool day. <laughs> Whereas, like, the baseline here is something's wrong if you're not happy. Right. And then, like, the other day I was having a, a crap day. And I was, like, starting to beat myself up about ha- being in a bad mood. And, like, you shouldn't be in a bad mood today. Like, perk up. And I was like, but maybe, yeah, you should just be in a bad mood sometimes. Yeah. Like, that's a normal counterbalance <laughs> to being the week prior where I was in, like, the best mood. Yeah. And, like... These are the things where I think we get in trouble because what you're saying is we are in full control of how we want to interpret the data. Um, Maybe not immediately, but if you take a step back, you can start 
controlling how you interpret that. And some people will just go, oh no, I'm unhappy. How do I fix this immediately? Right. And that's where, you know, drug dependencies and pills and things like that come into play. Yeah. Whereas, or like drinking or anything to distract yourself from whatever feeling. Whereas if you just, maybe other countries are like, well, the baseline in France is that everything sucks and the world is awful. <laughs> right. So like, of course, like, fuck it. Like, yeah. And so I don't know. I, I think that that's a really interesting. I think it's a, I, I think it's a really important point. And I think it's true that the U.S. does sort of idolize the positive, um, and whether or not it, it it is truly positive. Like they, you should be happy all the time, or you should be extroverted all the time, right? And and that's why you see all these things to help people come out of their shells. Like it's bad to be an introvert, right? Or it's it's not good to be sad, you know. And we try to cheer everyone up around us. Um, and I was thinking about this this morning. I walked my son to school, and on on the way back, I saw. One of the, the girls at a school has a t-shirt that said, happiest girls are the prettiest. And I thought, well, no, sad girls are pretty too. I mean, they're they're allowed to have that emotion and it doesn't make them ugly in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think it's important to to accept and have those emotions. I mean, as much as you can reframe them, um, it, it's it, it should be part of the narrative to be sad. You know, I mean, it's, it's okay to have those down moments or to have those bad days. Um, and I, I think of the, the movie I watched with my kids, um, Inside Out, yeah. right? It's that tension that actually makes the best story. Um, the, the, the world's best storytellers will tell you that you go to the movies, you read those books because there is a tension, because there is a bad and a good, a dark and a light. Yeah. And, and if your life is, is constantly either full of light or you just manufacture it to feel as if it's always full of light, that's where I think it can feel really off um, uh, because you don't actually have a great story. You just have the sort of life you're coasting through. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, there's one of the uh, professors in the program that I'm in now. uh, He, he wrote a book on narrative um, psychology. And one of the things he talks about that there are theories that uh, a number of the psychological disorders come from us having misaligned narratives, like narratives that just simply aren't structured properly or Mm -hmm. aren't, Aren't, aren't healthy narratives that follow. So um, I think that is part of it. I think if, if we if we constantly are reframing it and not accepting these moments, um, we aren't really experiencing, I think, a, a meaningful narrative. We're just, we're, we're just sort of processing and feeling bad about ourselves. Uh, as part of that, I think what's that there needs to be dark to have light. That's a really important point. Um, several podcasts ago, we brought this up briefly, but um, the only reason happiness exists is because sadness exists and vice versa. So like, I think it came up because of the, uh, the we work slogan is do what you love. We're mm-hmm. just kind of like riffing on that, but it's like, you can only do what you love if there's something you hate. Everything can't always be the best thing ever. Cause if everything's the best thing ever, you have no appreciation yeah. for it. You Unless have you're to have on VH1. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Wow. <laughs> but to that point, it's okay that bad things happen, right? Mm-hmm. And it's okay that unexpected things happen because if everything happened in the way you imagined it to, and if everything was, you know, like the Lego song says, everything is awesome, right? right? If that's the case, and actually what's funny in that movie, all the characters go about life mindlessly. Coasting, coasting, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, and that's what happens, right? When everything is awesome, then nothing's, awesome. nothing's awesome because you have nothing to compare it against. Right. 
Yeah, and it's it's true. It reminds me of this. So I've got a six and a four year old at home, and so you've watched uh, the Lego Movie a hundred times. Yes, I have. <laughs> I actually really like it. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I was gonna say, right. lucky you. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I get an excuse. They're not even in the room I'm watching it. <laughs> but um, you know, there's. I was reading them a book the other day, and my son is 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 a very proudly raising a, a nerd. And he is really into like reference books. Like instead of reading a storybook, he wants to read like about the tallest buildings. Growlier's encyclopedia. Yes, pretty <laughs> much. <laughs> yeah. um, and and so we were reading this book on the tallest buildings, and they list you know all of the ones when they were built and how high they were. And the twin towers are were shaded. They were, they were there, but they sort of kind of grayed them out. Um, and my son asked, "Well, why is this one grayed out?" Christian's about to dive into a fascinating story, and we'll get into all of it in just a moment. But first, let's pause for a second and talk about what makes a truly dope personal brand. A truly dope personal brand is one that creates lifetime value. So for instance, let's take this podcast. Every time you tune in, that's us creating value for you. And in order for you to create value for people you care about, you've got to go from being just a spectator or a participant in things you enjoy to being a creator, to producing things that other people want and care about and look to you for your guidance and leadership. That's what a dope personal brand is about. And if that sounds appetizing to you, then we want you in the Discover Your Inner Awesome Masterclass. That's our 10-week online personal brand bootcamp where you get lifetime membership to not only the course, but our amazing growing community of rock stars. In fact, Claudia just posted in our group, I just want to give a quick thank you to Martin and Raj for the quality of this class. It has been great and motivating. My initial expectation was that it would help me work on my branding and figure out my why, but I got much more out of it. I love the positivity and support of this group. So if you want to work on your personal brand, if you want to build a truly dope personal brand and have a voice in your field with a following who loves you, go to www.discoveryourinnerawesome.com and apply to join our class. Again, www.discoveryourinnerawesome.com. Back now to our conversation with Christian Aloma. And it was an awkward conversation, to be honest. And my wife was laughing down the hallway as I tried to explain terrorism to my six-year-old. <laughs> um, and I said, well, some people, you know, blew it up and, and they brought it down. And he said, well, why would they do that? Who, who does that? And I had to explain that there are bad people. But in the opportunity to explain that there are bad people, I got actually the opportunity to explain there's a lot more good people. And that's really important to, to, to explain and to understand that there are those balances and that in most cases, there is actually typically more good than there is bad. Um, and, and that's why that moment, even though it felt really awkward, I think was actually a really important teaching moment for him to see that even though there are bad things in the world, there are many people there that are trying to make it good. Mm-hmm. Uh, last year, I was my year of non-judgment. I spent the entire year practicing non-judgment. How did that go? <laughs> that sounds ridiculous. And, and I'm bringing that up. <laughs> and I'm bringing that up because you were saying to your son, well, there are bad people and there are good people. So last year, you know, I made an effort to remove judgment from my life, which went to the extent and extreme of I stopped yeah, to the best of my ability stopped saying if things are or aren't and replaced it with, at least mentally, I feel, or my opinion is. Because in my mind, I was like, oh yeah, who am I to say something is stupid or isn't stupid? I, how, how can I assign the universal value of it? Right. And if I say it is stupid, 
it's going to influence someone else's you know opinion of it. They're going to they're going to take that as the universal truth and value. So instead of saying like, oh, like that train going by is annoying, I would think instead, like I'm annoyed by that, but perhaps it's not annoying to someone else. Sure. And that was a total reconstruct of my reality and reframing how I look at everything. Because I was, I was doing that for pretty much anything I came across. And I think the, the genesis of it was music and how I had a history of being like, that rapper sucks. And thinking I had like the right to declare right. what is hip hop and what isn't hip hop. Sure. And then Meanwhile, where's your platinum album? <laughs> right? There are a handful of downloads. <laughs> I can tell you country music does suck. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm, kid- I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So... That, that was the genesis of it, was the music thing. And I'm like, well, but why, like, if someone else responds differently to music than I do, what makes the way I respond to it better than that? And yeah. that, so that entire, all of 2015 was me thinking in that way. And it was a really a radical shift in mindset. And yeah. it really helped me a lot to see, like, what that got me to was kind of a point to today, which was, I know where I stand on things. And now, like, I'm okay saying, there's that train, that's annoying. Yeah, well, that train's making fun of you. (laughs) (laughs) And now I'll say these things, I'll say, is this or isn't this, but at least now I know I'm not just accepting something that may not be my own opinion as my opinion. Sure. And that goes back even to what we talked about, you know, over a year ago on this podcast, which was the idea that we see a snippet of something and think we've seen the whole picture. We read a headline and we, we assume we know the whole story, but we only have read the headline. We only know the clickbait headline. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Like, oh, oh, uh, Kanye did something stupid again. Did you see that? And it's yeah, like, but he did. <laughs> <laughs> no judgment. Um, no, I, I think you're right. And, and what you're talking about, so there's a couple of things that come to mind is that one, I think practicing that idea of trying to remove judgment as much as possible. Um I think creates a sense of empathy that is really important in that even though they did something that I don't value or like or enjoy, um, it may have been meaningful to them. Mm -hmm. Right. And and that's, I am the same way about music. I was raised on hip hop. I really don't listen to other genres of hip hop or other genres of music. (laughs) I said, there's only hip hop uh, to other genres of music beyond hip hop. Um, But I recognize why people value things like country music. I recognize that. Uh, and it certainly is, I think, an exercise to practice that and, and to, to get into the habit and, and to keep practicing it and not forget it. I think the other side of that is that the it's hard to avoid it in some regards. And, and I don't necessarily think we need to completely avoid it because we're all raised in a context in which there is an established set of values. And those values, those things that we think are right and wrong, um, define the parameters of our social environment. And that social environment becomes a context in which our stories also make meaning. So what we do here in the U.S. might not be that meaningful to what they do in Japan or what they do in France or what they do in, in England, right? I mean, those contexts are really important. And even within the religions that they go to, you know, I mean, I think um, you can see different rituals and practices and beliefs are really meaningful to one group of believers compared to another one. I was raised Roman Catholic and going to uh, confession and saying the Ten Hail Marys afterwards was a really meaningful thing to absolve yourself of sin. You mean with a name like Christian, you're not Jewish? I know. People <laughs> ask me that too. And then they realize my name is Christian um, beyond that. But um, I, and even though I'm not that practicing today, right, I recognize 
my mother practices and she finds a lot of meaning in that. Um, and so the, the, the way she lives her life is within that sort of frame, within those, that set of values. Um, and that's why I think there are a lot of religions out there that, I mean, um, you know, Islam is probably one of them where people just immediately assume those guys are bad, mm -hmm. right? Um, because they read the headline, because they only take that bit. And they don't recognize that there's actually probably a really important set of values there that has helped them navigate a cultural and social context from which they came. Um, and I think it's still valuable even in other societies beyond the ones from which Islam originated, right? But there are also those extremists, and there's extremists in America as well that I think are ridiculous and, and, and sometimes insane. Yeah. Um, but we, we focus on those because in some regards, those are the really exciting things. And yeah. so that's what defines... Uh, an idea for us. Well, and with, to that point specifically, what I've always found interesting is, you know, to think about this concept of meaning and how are we framing realities and all that stuff. And what do you believe versus what are you told to believe? Like, look at how the media will portray certain events, like the the Sandy Hook school shooting, is not considered an act of terrorism. Right. In reality, why? It, like that is right. Sure. It's exactly what terrorism yeah. is, but it's not. It's not put out to the public as terrorism. Words right. matter. And on the other side, the thing in San Bernardino, Bernardino? Yep. that's an act of terrorism. White guy in Sandy Hook, Islamic guy in San Bernardino. Yeah. And this is how we're framing up our reality. And this is where I think so much of the tension comes from, at least uh, racially and culturally and religiously, is what's being fed to us is these guys are separate from these guys over here. Yeah. And we're going to use a certain set of words only to describe this group of people and a different set of words to describe the other group of people over here. Yeah. So now like naturally you're feeding people to pit one side versus the other. I, I agree. And I think it's, it goes back to this whole idea of what narratives do we create? And I mean, and that's even the language you'll hear politicians use, mm -hmm. you know, the, the media use where what's the narrative you want to put out about this thing? Because that's the, that's what people will pick up. That's what they will grab onto. They won't grab onto the facts. They'll grab onto the narrative. I think the best journalism puts the facts in that narrative. Um, the worst journalism twists it to just be really appealing uh, and sweet like candy. Um, uh, and so uh, I, I completely agree that words matter. Um, Harry Potter is one of my favorite series of novels. Um, and there's a quote, I can't even remember if it's from the book or from the movies now, because I also love the movies, um, but uh, where Dumbledore says, um, uh, I believe our, one of our greatest sources of magic is the language we use. I think that's true in yeah. real life, in the mm -hmm. muggle world, whatever it is, right? <laughs> is, is the words we choose to use, the way we craft these narratives, um, even the order in which we present those words are absolutely critical to the way in which we interpret them. Uh, and the way a, a broad audience might interpret them, if you're part of a mass communication industry, right, that is throwing narratives out there. And that's what I think is social media is a really fascinating area to me right now because I think it is this sort of this really brand new thing, even though it feels like it's been around for years, that we still don't entirely know how to mm -hmm. use. Where this single person who uh, 10 years ago used to just be a single person with influence among their friends now becomes a channel of mass communication. Yeah. And that's in some cases dangerous. I mean, it's, 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 there's no regulation on that. There is no, you know, control. There's no training in any of that. 
Um, and, and you can get a person with a huge following creating these narratives that others are really believe in and really sort of subscribe to that may not be what I think is that healthy. Uh, so the, these narratives to me, and I, because of my studies and because of this focus, I, I will look at everything and say, where do, what's the narrative in that? And I'll see the narratives and things. And, um, uh, and so I, I believe it's a huge part of it. And I, I think it's a huge part of our lives and the way we experience the world around us. Um, are the narratives that we both choose and are forced to or subconsciously consume uh, mm -hmm. around us. Can you, sorry, can you talk about the idea of the words matter? But you're telling me about like Trump gains this popularity because he's painting the picture. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, there's a couple things I want to throw out here. So the first one is, did you just call me a muggle? Because them's fighting words. Second of all. <laughs> did you get your invitation? <laughs> no. Okay, then. Um, <laughs> that train out there is not nine and three quarters. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> The, the second piece I want to, I might lose it now, but the second piece I was trying to touch on was, oh, Urban Dictionary. I was talking with someone recently and they were expressing how fascinated they were about Urban Dictionary, how someone from a culture that would never influence someone from a completely different culture can now understand each other because this thing exists, right? Yeah. Like, you know, babe is a word, and now fleek. all of a sudden, fleek is a word, fleek. and now I can figure out what that is, even though I'm not part of the culture yeah. that came up with that, right? Whereas in the past, you would just be like, these are nonsense words. I have no idea what's happening. And this plays in, I think, what you're talking about, which is how um, there's a difference between economic status and social status. Um, and is this what... No, no, go ahead. Oh, uh, well, basically, it's like... Um, the world that you grow up in, like even people confuse the two and combine them. Uh, and so you'll say like, oh, someone is this, you know, the people confuse like race with economics, with status and things like that. But like a rapper who developed all of these traits to succeed in the world, the social world that they grew up in, they can move up economic classes, but their social class won't change. And people don't quite make that understanding because it's not separated out so like their reality is still their reality they're not just right. going to change into whatever reality you think they should change into right just like you wouldn't change into someone else's reality and it kind of shows how much the worlds that we put around ourselves or that we grow up in uh shape so much of what we can and can't do oh, yeah. in the world yeah so to, i guess to illustrate that point if i'm understanding correctly it's like you take a rapper grows up in the streets, becomes like, like Tupac, he's still going to have a thug life tattoo across his stomach and still going to wear ridiculously baggy khaki pants, of all things, right, and Timberland boots. Even though he's a multi-millionaire, he's still in the same social class. But, and what you're, I think what you're saying is, people have this expectation that just because you gain economic status, now you've got to start wearing tight polo shirts and golf shorts and boat shoes. Yeah. Well, that's not his well, reality. I've heard that this has also been a bit of the debate around um, Beyonce's Lemonade, right? Uh, and just really Beyonce in general. Of, I think the world began to accept Beyonce as okay for white people. And now that more recently, maybe more of her songs are taking more of a racial tone, uh, speaking to a number of the injustices, speaking to a number of the social issues that are going on. It's a shock. People are kind of taken aback because they they think whoa 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 I thought I didn't yeah. I didn't think you were that right and and they've classified her and they've tried to group her or box her into something that felt really comfortable to a lot of people because 
she did make some really wonderful pop songs, right? That were, were very broadly uh, accessible to the group. But now that some of her songs have more of those tones to them and more of those messages to them, those narratives don't don't resonate with people. I've got friends asking me like, "Am I allowed to sing Formation?" Yeah. Right. And and, and it's in some regards maybe they shouldn't. Maybe they should. I, I'm not sure that it matters one way or the other. The message is out there and the narrative is out there, and it's it's the fact that maybe it's even making people uncomfortable is what's important. Yeah. When Trump, so like the, the, the analysis that I heard about this, they were saying like, people look at Trump, they're like, how can he say these things? How can he incite, like, he goes straight to fighting instead of using words. But there is an entire social class that that is how they act. And so he is talking directly to his social class, even though his economic class is in a different state. People expect that the economic class and the social class match, yeah. and they don't. Yeah. And I think that's the big disconnect. And then they, so like, they'll confuse all sorts of different things in these arguments and try and classify you into things that are unclassifiable. Yeah. A couple of things I want to bring up. So the, the, th- the thing I was talking about with Trump was, you know, how did he, how did this happen, right? Well, there's a number of factors that go into winning a campaign, but you look at the debates, you've got Rubio and Cruz, and they're talking about their six-point plan. And to go to the Dumbledore quote of words of the best magic, then you've got Trump saying, oh, I'm going to build this big, beautiful wall and people picture a wall. They know what that looks like. They yeah. don't know what a six-point six yeah. plan looks oh, like. Oh, yeah. And that's I how you start... visualizing. Right, it. yeah. He's, he's, he's painting the picture for everyone. So, they can, so now it's like the, 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 the means of understanding is so, such a low barrier to entry. Right. If that's what you're saying. Yeah. And you can, you can start to... He's talking in a way that, you know, he's like, oh, he tells he's, it like... He's he, telling the most accessible story. Exactly. And everyone's yeah. saying he te- he's telling it like it is. All, that's all he's doing. He's just playing to the lowest common denominator. Yeah. And then he's getting all the, the buy-in from, from so many different types of people who right. otherwise wouldn't even be involved in right. the voting process. And in some regard, you know, that was what made, I think, Obama success, successful in his first campaign, mm-hmm. right? Was, wasn't that he just had really smart plans. And I think he played it obviously very differently than Trump did. But the power in Obama was that he felt like he was of and for the people. You yeah. know, I mean, he felt accessible to a younger democratic base um and 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 it was just literally the matter of the fact that he was telling stories and narratives and talking in ways that made people feel like it made sense like they could connect to it more easily rather than going into this really complicated six-point plan that's gonna you know with this huge code name for some act or some law that they want to pass it's you know i'm gonna bring health care trump is saying i'm gonna build a wall he, he's, he's telling stories that more people can yeah. connect to. Well, and these come down to single words, hope and defense. Yeah. yeah. Like, that's it. Hope on one hand, defense on the other. Everyone, even if the wall never gets built, the, 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 the image in my head is that no one can move through it, right? And so I don't care who you are, you knew, like, even if you don't watch the news, you know about the wall. Yeah. And because you can't escape something like that, even if you, it's been, you know, we're coming to the end of his presidency and you still remember the poster that says hope. It's like, these are things that burn into your brain and create visceral meaning that you can't let go of. Just the same way Nike's just do it will never leave your brain. And just the way... And look at like the Star Wars defense plan that the government seriously considered, right? Of building what felt like this laser dome to defend (laughs) the world from missiles, right? It's easy to understand when you're calling it a Star Wars defense dome or whatever it might be. You know, you get it when you think of it in that way. Yeah. So, and that's actually, and that, and 
for the 10 millionth time, I'll reference Hamilton. Uh, if you're familiar with the musical Hamilton. Who lives, who dies, who tells your story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful interlude. And it's popular. Like, look at how easy it is to remember. Like, like high schools are using this as material to teach kids about the Revolutionary War now because you can either try and take notes out of a textbook and learn about a guy, and learn about someone historically. Or you can remember, how does a bastard, orphan, son of a whore and a Scotsman dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot? How does a bastard, orphan, son of a whore and a Scotsman dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by providence impoverished and squalor grow up to be a hero and a scholar? The ten dollar and it's got it's even got that like did it did it did it and now you're bringing in not just the idea of absorbing information but it's tied in with rhythm and now it you perceive and you you respond and you you absorb information in a whole new way oh yeah that's much more easier just like just like Trump can do by saying we're gonna build a wall I can picture that this is easy to understand someone can do musically and take historical information and present it musically. Well, yeah. repetition and music are two of the easiest ways to get someone on board with what you're you're saying. Yeah, like that's what churches do. That's what every every uh, sports game starts with. Uh, you know, uh, or every sports. <laughs> <laughs> He's so not in sports. I'm not either. So you, what, you can what stop is the, the national anthem. anthem? The national anthem. That's the one. Every with, like, sports chance. game starts with sports. I can't believe how. Anyway. <laughs> Every sports team starts You're like Ted Cruz calling it a basketball ring. A basketball ring, yeah, <laughs> I right. saw that. Uh, no, but the idea being is like, what what place does that have at the beginning of throwing around a baseball? Like, why are we singing in unison yeah. and then watching people throw a baseball? There's no connection there. And like, in a place where we would have a connection, like in, before a musical, everyone doesn't stand up before the musical and sing a song. <laughs> like, And I'm stealing all this from Crack.com, but the idea being like, what, like it, it brings the whole place together in this unified moment yeah. to do something together. It makes everyone feel like they're in a place together, and then you can proceed. And the same thing goes with church, and the same thing goes with music. That's why everyone at a concert sings together and leaves feeling like they were part of something. Yeah. And I think this is all of these pieces that we're throwing out there become little tiny building blocks uh, that allow you, if you understand what causes things to stick, what causes behavior to change, you can use it in your own life to actually shape your own meaning and tell your own story, right? And so one of the things I was writing about a month ago that I never published, but it was literally, I sat down and I was like, I'm brainwashing myself right now. And I just legit looked at all of the things that I've, I've decided to consume and said, what am I brainwashing myself to do right now? And it's like to eat a certain way, I, you know, everything that I interact with food-wise is these certain stores, these certain restaurants. Uh, the, the language that I use, the, the media I consume, like I don't watch the news, but I watch a lot of YouTube and the people I follow on Facebook. This is all shaping every single thing. And just like you can unfollow people on Instagram, every single little thing that I'm doing is shaping this reality in a way that is influencing how I behave and act every day. And so 
if I understand that and start being more mindful of it, I can start shaping the meaning and reinforcing the meaning on a daily basis, which makes me feel it stronger. And then you go from feeling to believing. And then once you're believing it, you start taking action on it and really forcing it in, into the rest of the world, because that's really what we're trying to get to is how do we make an impact? And so once you find that meaning, reinforce that meaning, don't confuse it with a thousand other things. Like right. if every day you're trying to figure out what the first thing you're supposed to do is, instead of just make eggs, you're never going to get through the day. Change yeah. eggs. Change eggs, sorry. Yeah. We, you don't actually make eggs. You just change yeah. them from we just one stage change to the transform one, yes, eggs. We, we, we are egg transformers. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. And so that's, that's the only way. And people are like, I want to make an impact in the world, right? You hear everyone say that. Everyone who wants a job. Yeah. says, I want to make an impact in the world. All right, well, what reality are you shaping for yourself right now? And if you can explain the reality that you're currently trying to shape for yourself, you can then say, this is how I can bring that reality into the company, into the world, into the whatever it is I'm trying to build. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think that is, um, you know, the, the how selective we are with this stimuli that we allow ourselves to experience, um, I think is critical to whether or not we are enjoying it. I mean, whether we, we are finding meaning in it and, you know, I've been through those moments where I'm like, you know, I've really got to expose myself to things outside of what I just like, you know, and I'll try to watch the other news channel that, you know, just dramatizes everything from the other angle and things like that. And, and I can, and I will, and, and, it, and I will enjoy it, but I find myself, I can't create meaning out of it the way I can with other mm -hmm. stimuli, with other content. Right. You know? And so, um, it actually reinforces the previous. It does. Meaning. It totally does. Yeah. It suddenly becomes like a comedy show instead of yeah. a real news source, and you just—that's how you interpret it, right? You laugh when you're supposed to be like, "Yeah, I don't about <laughs> that," you know. And, um, so, but those—I think those those narratives that we choose, and again, it's very different now that we live in this world where everything is available to us online and digital, and we can control these different sources in different ways, right? Where we used to have three channels, and that was your news, or even just the radio station, and that was your news that framed your world. Now, I think, which is really great, we have a lot more power and ability to to create this reality, right? To mm -hmm. to shape our context, to shape these behaviors, to shape the way we're perceiving the world um, into a way that we find really meaningful. And I and I, I agree. I think if, if you can begin to define that, then you can begin to identify ways in which that narrative can be extended from you out into a broader world. Um, you, you made a point earlier, uh, I think you did, um, about, um, you know, the, the, these histories that we have and, and, um, and, and sort of this justification we have to do things, at least this is the way I interpreted it. But a lot of people will often, especially in a commercial world, they'll be like, you know, we don't want to talk about our history because it just makes us seem old and outdated. Right. But our histories are really important narratives that justify where we think we can go. And so the way we frame our history will tell us if we think we're going to become heroes or not, if we think we're going to become saviors or not, if we think we're going to become builders or not. Yeah. We look back at that and we reframe that and we remember that in a different way. There's a, I wrote a blog post uh, on our company website about um, how we, we remember, we are who we remember ourselves to be, mm -hmm. which is this sort of social science truth um, that came out of it. And, and I talk about this example of, I believe myself to be someone of a high pain threshold. And the reason I tell myself this is that I once broke my leg and I didn't even cry. Like I just sat there with a broken leg and my mother didn't believe I had a broken yeah, leg. That's and, badass. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think I was just basically in shock uh, is what they call that. But, um, but I, I interpret it as, you know, I, I totally, you know, just have this pain threshold where I could take a bullet and not flinch. Right. 
Um, but that's just the story I've created for myself. That's the narrative I began to tell myself. Um, and, and so I believe that. And, you know, and, and I, I now actually translate that into sort of both physical and emotional pain. Like I will bear things for my kids if I need to. Um, you know, I'll bear things for my wife if the kids are sick and they're going through like procedures or anything like that. Uh, I try to be the brunt of that. And, and I think we prove that we can do that by the way in which we're looking back at the things we've done or consumed or experienced. Mm -hmm. Um, that's a really key thing. And I think we talked about it on a previous episode at some point, but this idea that, um, sorry, can you say the that piece again about, oh yeah, yeah the, the pain or the pain threshold that you've, you've created that basically reality for yourself and you believe that about yourself. So you are going to react a certain way based on that reality you've created for yourself. Same thing happens with what realities do we allow other people to create for us that make us act a certain way? So like the funny example with my previous roommates was like, I'm a terrible handyman, but, and, and they all know that. So if anything handyman related comes up, it's like, don't even let Raj try, right? So I'm not even going to think to try and offer any help. Yeah. Versus if I'm in like, a, if I walk into this studio and something's broken and I'm the only one here and it's if either I fix it or it's going to stay broken forever, I'm going to naturally think, no, no, it's on me to figure this out. But if the, because it's a different reality when I walk into this room. Yeah. But if I walk back in with those guys and like the reality painted there is Raj cannot fix things, then I believe that to be true about myself. And I'll look at a hammer and a nail and be like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, this is what I always say. I'm the IT guy of my family, right? Um, and it's it's classically like that Amy Schumer skit where you know she's the IT person yeah. for her family. And I have my in-laws, I have my 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 own family calling me and like reading warning pop-ups <laughs> to me, and they're like, "What what should I do here? Should I click dismiss?" Um, and and it has always baffled me because um, I I look at technology as like a thing that. Even if it breaks, it gets repaired, you know? So there isn't really, like, a wrong way to do it at all. Um, but they look at no, it and they don't think... Don't end a task. Right. No. right. They, <laughs> they look at it and they see these warnings pop up or these errors and, and they they think if they touch it... Yeah. That, you know, the, the, the social security system will break down because they did something on their laptop, <laughs> yeah. right? And, um, and I think about that because... I was raised on computers, you know, I like I, I had a 286 when I was in middle school and a 386 and a 486 all the way up. And um, so to me, technology computers are just sort of natural, like they, they, they are things that are trial and error type of experiences. But to others, they're not. Mm -hmm. And to my parents, they're not. And they don't have that. They, they just don't see themselves as being technological. And so they never will try because of that frame. Yeah. Um, th this is where... Um, my wife and I have taken a really sort of deliberate focus on how we're crafting the narratives and the realities in which our kids are being raised. And we've got a daughter and a son. And for my daughter, especially, right, we're, we're, we did not want to raise her sort of as the stereotypical girl where everything is automatically pink and she gets dolls and she doesn't get to play with tools and she can't play the rough stuff that my son does. No, she gets to do everything my son does um, to the point that now she went to a tea party birthday the other day. She was the only girl there that brought Spider-Man to get dressed up instead of a doll, right? Because she just loves Spider-Man. She's never even seen the show, but she just loves Spider-Man for some reason. Um, and, and it's things like that that I think are really important because those narratives do limit you. They can both help you feel like you can do really amazing things or they can limit you. 
Um, and so if you're telling narratives that say I can't do a thing or I'm incapable of it or I'm not that person, that will stop you from doing those things yeah. that you may feel really are, are really important. Yeah, what's that quote? Whether you think you can or you can't, you're, you're right. right. Yeah. yeah. There's the, uh, I think it was the Dove campaign from a couple of years ago where it was a bunch of adult women and it was like, throw like a girl. Yeah. They all do like the dainty yeah. thing. And then it was a bunch of 10 year old girls throw like a girl and they were throwing and it was like this superpower motion and the the painted reality is different for the adult woman of what she's supposed to be in the eyes of others versus the 10 year old is just like this is how i have fun yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely and i mean it's 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 probably most emphasized or, or noticeable you know with women right because there is such a clear narrative and you see that clear transformation it's, it holds true for men, too. The way that they're told to treat women or think of women or relate to women um, it are the narratives that they're given from a very young age. And sometimes it's hard to control. I mean, like we're not mm -hmm. perfect as parents at doing it, but I think it, it, you have to get really conscious about it and get really uh, uh, deliberate about what how you're raising kids or how, how you're even just projecting yourself into the world with your coworkers. Even. Yeah, and that's actually something that I think on the, the male side of things is going to be like, the next frontier, like, you know, we had like the, the LGBT community, like be empowered, like women's empowerment is the current thing. I think the next thing is going to be the emotional man, because that has not been an empowered thing in the past because men generally have had the, have yeah. held the power, but it's still not a generally accepted thing to be a man who shows emotion. Right. And I, and we're starting to see a little bit of that. I mean, like this podcast is a degree of us, totally throwing ourselves on the line and saying things we think or afraid of, et cetera. But we're also starting to see some of the more mainstream things start to adopt that type of thinking and creation of content around men are allowed to feel things. Yeah. And the old, the old boys club of like, no, like you just play cards, smoke a cigar and don't talk about your feelings and drink beer. That's starting to go away. It still exists to a degree. But I think our next frontier is going to be the, abil the ability for men to be emotional. Yeah. And I think what's really important, kind of something you brought up at the very beginning, was um, we always think that we have to focus on like the specific things that are happening, right? But really there's a narrative you have to build around anything to make it successful and to make it into a movement. And so, you know, the women's movement is a whole lot of narratives that have come together over the years, right? And um, one of the things that I've seen recently, which is just one of the most amazing movements and narratives that I've come across in recent in the recent years, is something called Daybreaker. Have you guys heard? You you definitely know about this, but it's a six a.m. dance party, like full on club out dance party, uh, with no booze, no drugs, nothing. And so, basically, it was created by uh, the co-founder of General Assembly, and he he had. You know, he said the New York nightlife scene was like partying, drugs, and all this stuff. Didn't want to be part of it. There was mornings are boring, so there's this open real estate, um, and there's a lot of people who are super healthy who want to party um, but don't have any options. And so he created these massive raves in the morning. And so I've been to two so far, and they're just crazy. It's like everyone gets an iced coffee and raves at 6 a.m. with rappers and like a brass band comes through and there were like tap dance, like Irish Irish tap dancers on uh, St. Patrick's Day and like crazy backflip dancers and like 
it was the most insane thing. It was, it was better than any night at a club that I've ever spent in my entire life. And they they use a lot of the elements that we're talking about here in order to shape this reality. Like they made it somewhat exclusive in order to be at it. They made it so interesting that people who even aren't morning people would want to be there. Um, they at the end will go around with cards, give everyone a card, and in unison you'll all uh, read a quote together and like do a big group hug. And so like they have missions and values, and they created this narrative of why it exists and what the purpose is. And they've put this together so strategically in a way that community can't help but grow. And I think that's really interesting because like community is hard to build. Community is a really really tough thing to, oh, yeah. to create. And if you can find these these levers to pull on, you can really start a movement. And you know they're they're not even like fully against anything. They're like you know if you want to drink, if you want to do drugs, that's cool. You just don't have to. Like that's their mantra, and it's it blows my mind. And like I that's something that if you said that to anyone, you'd be like that that'll never happen. Yeah, yeah. and actually, an even a lesser version of that is almost how easily you can get a domino to tip when you decide to change a behavior that's not the generally accepted behavior. I mean, you're on over six months of no drinking. Yeah. And even yesterday, I still drink and everything, but yesterday after the event I was at, there was a happy hour following it. And I had to get to this other thing that we were doing later on. And I, everyone got a beer. I got a cup of tea. And then I see the, girl behind me who ordered who had just ordered wine and was part of our group she was like oh you know you're having yeah i'll get a, i'll get a green tea as well yeah and i turned to this other guy i'm like it always happens whenever one person decides to yeah. not drink someone else is like i actually don't feel like drinking either yeah. i was <laughs> only doing this to fit right. in <laughs> well it's interesting because i think the metaphor is the other way is 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 not what what you can affect when you tip one domino but what how you can stop the domino effect by just moving one out of the way mm. um because that is what happens. I mean, our greatest influence in life is our social situation in which we're in. We do what everyone else around us is doing. And, and that's why behavior sometimes becomes almost meaningless because we don't realize or think about what we're actually doing in that moment. We all go to the bar, so we expect to drink. And when the guy orders the seltzer water, it's like, wait a second, yeah. you know? And like you hear like records stop kind yeah. of thing. And, People actually get offended. It's interesting. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, I had friends. I grew up. And you know, alcohol was not part of our family growing up. And so through high school, I didn't drink. So I was the friend at the high school parties that wasn't drinking. Through most of college, I didn't drink that much, though I did start to drink then. Um, and I would have friends that, like, they would tell me they felt bad drinking around me because I, they thought I was judging them. Yeah. And I was like, I don't care. Yeah. Like, not I have fun well. without it. Please drink. Yeah. And, and I, I probably got uninvited to things because I wasn't the one drinking when everyone else was drinking. Uh, and it is because you just... I mean, in some regards, you are disconnected from a narrative that they all decided to share it. Yeah. And that can make some people uncomfortable. Disconnecting <laughs> from the narrative, I think, is really interesting. One just small thing I'll say about that. I think the induction into drinking is one of, like, like looking back, it's one of, like, the funniest things. You know, I, I didn't really drink at all in high school, maybe just, like, here and there. And I was big into track, running track, so I didn't want to do anything that really conflicted with my performance in that. But so what you know when some of my group of friends started drinking whatever it was sophomore junior year, it's like you walk into this like like a, a dark basement yeah where like everyone's being quiet because they don't want to get caught. It's a fraternity, <laughs> you man. know. It's like this is fun. Yeah, <laughs> you know. It's like yeah. you're you're even like 
muffling the sound of a pop top like underneath a pillow like you've just like shot someone in the head and you, you know <laughs> and, and it's like looking back at that it's like this is what everyone was waiting for the moment when they could when they had to talk softly yeah and and muffle up the, the pop top so that they could figure out what drunk not, felt not like. only that have they tasted the beer? Yeah. No, it was cheap <laughs> beer to begin yeah. with. I mean, light, but all of it. these elements, this is all part of it. This is what builds oh, the absolutely. narrative. This yeah. is what builds the camaraderie because like, oh, we all drank that shit beer together, right. right? And the same thing happens with Daybreaker, right? They're like, come down into this dark basement at six in the morning and then, oh my God, there's rappers. And like, yeah. so everyone's like, what is happening? What is this crazy experience? Same thing at a fraternity, right? The induction into a fraternity, it's built it is designed to create camaraderie for life yeah and that is why these things last for life that is why religion is what it is that is why you know my you know people are still hanging out with their fraternity brothers when they're 80 years old like this is like the military people who are in the military together this is you have to if you want these connections that last your lifetime you have to actively understand what you're being brought into yeah and if you want to create something completely different, if, you, if that's not the lifestyle you want, you have to create it. You have to design your own induction ceremony. Yeah. And, and the thing is, a lot of these examples, and, and there's some work that we've done at, at Brand Trust that sort of speaks to this, which is um, those, those tough moments, those painful moments, the, the challenges are what makes it more meaningful, right? Yeah. You, you you create these lifelong bonds with your fraternity brothers because you all had to, like, stand out in the middle of winter in your underwear, like, singing some song. I don't know. I've never been and part of a fraternity. And the song brings right? it into you. Yeah, and so there's that pain that you go through. That, singing the national anthem here. Right. The song you sing at the beginning of sports. We're all sports. <laughs> um, and uh, the same thing, I mean, holds, like, we, we've done a study on tattoos. And people will say, if tattoos weren't painful, I wouldn't get it. Yeah. Because there's meaning in going through that experience that others won't go through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or others won't do, like, wake up at 6 in the morning and go in some basement. You don't know what's going to happen. Um, the other example <laughs> I think about is, like, that sounds weird, doesn't it? Yeah. You're starting to remind me, like, my high school experiences where I grew up in South Florida. And it was like, we're all going to the Everglades to drink. And I'm like, alligators! <laughs> Alcohol and alligators do not go together. <laughs> that sounds but... like a great bar. Alcohol and alligators. <laughs> it actually probably does. Um, but no, I mean, there's there's this movement. I forget where it started. If it started on the East Coast or the West Coast. I think it was on the East Coast called the November Project. Yeah, and I'm it's like those it. group of people that just run and work out together, and they they yeah. become these like massive groups. It's in Chicago now, actually. Is it? It's yeah. in Chicago now. I know my my friend joined it in San Francisco, and I mean it was like I wanted to be a part of it. To be honest, how amazing it looked and sound, and I hate running. Like mm-hmm. I think running is the worst sport <laughs> on earth. But they will run for like ten miles. They'll then do some push ups and some workouts. And at the end of it all, they always hug. Yeah. Like the end of it's and always a hug and like, and like great work. And like... Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> but they've like created a community that is just amazing. Yeah. Um, and just and has this. And again, they probably have nothing else in common in the rest of their life other than they enjoy this moment together. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's really amazing. I think those 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 the narrative you create and how dramatic you make that narrative or how engaging or emotional or intense you make that narrative will engage people, will connect them to that narrative even more deeply. Yeah. So duly noted that watching the, the the drinking in basements in high school, being quiet under dim lighting was also part of setting the precedent for the rest of my life to expect that I should have to park two blocks away from the house so no one knew there were people coming over. 
<laughs> that was a, that was what I was being inducted into. Because actually today, finding a parking spot, I had to park two blocks out. So <laughs> no one knows I was conditioned here. from the young age. Yeah. Uh, all right, we need to wrap up before we do. Christian, tell our listeners uh, just a little bit about your background and what you're working on and where they can find you. Sure. Um, so I am Christian Aloma. I work. I'm a group director at an organization called Brand Trust. Uh, we do market research and uh, strategy for big brands around the world using the social sciences to apply them. Um, my background, my personal background and academic background is in psychology. I'm currently pursuing a PhD in narrative psychology uh, and looking at the relationship between consumers and the products they own um, and the, the stories they tell about that relationship. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn at Christian Aloma, on um, Twitter at Chris Aloma, uh, or at Brand Trust. Uh, so that's it. All right. To wrap up, we'll go around the room, start with Martin, and we'll end with you. This was a pretty awesome philosophical discussion, so I'm curious to know your respective answers. Martin, how do you find meaning? Question mark. I think you find meaning by first understanding what meaning is currently there uh, in all the things that you do every day. So just being aware of why you're doing all these things. And then once you're aware of it, deciding whether or not that's what you want and then shaping it from there. So if, if you're doing things robotically that you don't know why you're doing them, question them, change them, see if you like the alternative better. And then if you do, make it part of your life. I'm kind of pissed that you said an answer that's going to be pretty similar to mine. <laughs> uh, my answer for how be you Be more find... creative. Because <laughs> the judgment year is over. <laughs> 2016, man. That was 2015. My answer for how do you find meaning is look at what you, what are the truths that you have accepted in your life and take stock of all the truths you've accepted in your life. When you've done that, ask what of these do I actually believe versus what have I been told to believe? And now you've got a starting point to find meaning. And in general, you should probably always be asking why. <laughs> Christian, how do you find meaning? Uh, for me, I think it's stepping back and looking at either the what seem like amazing moments or what seem like mundane moments and, and seeing how, does, how do I look at this as a moment of a bigger narrative, of a bigger life that's happening. Uh, and, and is this something that is pushing my narrative towards this goal that I've set up that I think you guys all have these really good ideas of, of where do I want to be and where do I want to go and what do I want to do in my life? Is this helping me get there? Uh, and if not, don't worry about it too much. If it is, hold on to it and try to do more of it. Is this the just... life? Is this just fantasy? Yeah. <laughs> I think I got it wrong. Got Christian. in a landslide. <laughs> from reality. Yeah, I'm into hip hop. I don't know. <laughs> that was clean. Fair enough. Bohemian Rhapsody? No, I know the song, okay. but I, I can't just sing it like that. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is really great. That was our conversation with Christian Aloma. Christian, dude, thank you for joining us. I think we're all like enlightened after that conversation. Did you, the listener, enjoy this episode? If so, the best compliment you can give us is a rating and review on iTunes, as well as subscribing to the show. Super easy to do, and we would love it if you would do that because when you leave a rating and review and when you subscribe, more people get to find the show, and that means the awesomeness gets spread. 
For full show notes, references, and resources discussed on this episode, you can find them all at idealemon.com. The brand new idealemon.com, might I add. So check them all out there. That'll do it for this one. You have been listening to the Discover Your Inner Awesome podcast. Thank you again to Christian Aloma. For Martin McGovern, I am Rajiv Nathan. We'll catch you next time. But in the meantime, take care and be awesome today. <laughs>